Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at San Diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. What's up? This your boy, Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Okay, so we're talking Nigerian food. I feel like you know where this is going. (laughs) (laughs) I almost don't want it to go there. (laughs) I'm contractually obligated. (laughs) Okay. Let's let's just do it. Let's just do it. (laughs) All right. Let's get into it. I have to ask you about Jollof. Of course. Of Um, course. (laughs) And I know that this is something that is, shall we say, spirited, Spirited is a great word. Spirited is a great word. Hello, Point of Origin listeners. I'm your host, Stephen Satterfield. It's our second season of the podcast, and we're back and better than ever, delivering you the very best stories from the world of food from around the world. And to begin our second season in celebration of Black History Month, We're in Africa, in Nigeria to be more specific, and I'm so very excited about this season and today's episode in particular because today we're talking to three Nigerian chefs who are bringing Nigerian cuisine to the fore for diners all over the world and in some cases bringing it back to the consciousness of Nigerians in their own country. And the thing that makes each of the three of our chefs so unique and the reason that we have them on the show today is that they're not simply preparing food, they're using food in a very specific way to make a broader point about how they see the world and what they want you to see in it too. I think the power of storytelling, people often say the people who write the story, who tell the story, own the story. Mm. And what I've learned from a lot of the chefs are the stories they tell they get to tell the story of their cuisine, of their food, of their people through the art that they have. I mean, I think there's there's also a point where you realize that this thing that you're trying to achieve doesn't welcome you. I was learning about all these other cuisines and you know, not realizing that I had my own. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and anytime I would try to bring it up, it would it would be like, oh, no, it doesn't fall into this category. And so, you know, the categories aren't even there to let you in. Like, you kind of have to create your own category. Right. So, like, the structures in place are not really there to welcome people like us mm-hmm. or to tell our stories, which is why it's so important to tell our own stories Absolutely. and to create our own structures. Regional Dishes, the power and privilege of owning your own story. Today on Point of Origin, it's Nija. Okay, chef, so the people want to know, Nija, what is Nija? Nija? Yeah. 
<laughs> Nainja. Nainja. Um, Nainja is kind of like, you know, you know, you think of Chicago, you think of Chi-Town. Mm-hmm. Nainja is the, the young people's name for Nigeria. You know, the youth's abbreviation for Nigeria. Nainja, like the street name for Nigeria amongst the youth. Chef Michael Elegdebe moved to Lagos from New York in February 2016. It was his first time home in 13 years. Elegdebe, whose mother and grandmother were also chefs, cooked in some of the nation's preeminent kitchens before moving back to Nigeria to find himself in the food that he was preparing. My grandmother and my mother, you know, had training in culinary arts. They never really went into culinary arts in in a philosophical way. And I I found that I can actually make a difference in the direction that I approach the art and the, the type of influence that I can have with the representation I can be in culinary arts, you know. Mm-hmm. You mentioned, and I didn't actually know this, that your grandmother was also a chef in Lego. So you're a third generation chef. Yes. During the colonization of Nigeria, my grandmother studied under a French chef in Nigeria, um, in Surulere, Lagos. Then, you know, used that as her means of being an entrepreneur. She had a catering school and restaurant and a fashion school. And she used that to raise her seven kids, six girls and one boy. And you would find in my mother's side of the family, most of the women are in the line of food, including my mom, you know. Philosophically speaking, what is your point of view as both a a professional, but as sort of an ambassador of Nigerian cuisine as well? I've always thought, you know, our food can stand amongst the more accoladed cuisines around the world. I just... It just needed to be understood and represented in a way that, you know, was approachable enough for people to want to know more about it. And for me, I think Nigerian food and African cuisine in general has been under underrated on the global scheme and been misunderstood for the most part. And I find myself very lucky to have had so many opportunities to explore different cultures, cuisine under chefs who really adhere to what it means to be philosophical about the approach they take in food. And that really helped me in, in, the, in the direction that I went in African cuisine. I'm always interested in chefs like yourself who have this formal education and come back home, so to speak. And you've sort of alluded to this in what you just said, but I guess I'm hoping you can further articulate kind of what you feel you gathered from the chefs in those formal environments who themselves were coming with a very strong point of view around food. What is it that you were able to garner there that you brought back to Nigerian cuisine? I think the power of storytelling People often say the people who write the story, who tell the story, own the story. Mm. And what I've learned from a lot of the chefs are the stories they tell. They get to tell the story of their cuisine, of their food, of their people through the art that they have and through the art that they exhibit. Um, And seeing how a tradition, seeing how people um, can be translated into the storytelling of food and food experiences, and seeing how even chefs that I didn't work with, like Rene Rizepi and Alex Atala and Massimo Butura, how their approach towards their cuisine have changed the world's perception. For Rene, no one looked at Scandinavian food as, you know, anything more than potatoes and you know, carrots. And now the Nordic cuisine is being revered. And it's because of that representation and the stories that are told behind the food, the people and the tradition. So I think that one of the most powerful things I learned from the chefs 
it's the power, the power of storytelling and the representation, the people telling the story. You know, it's a predictable question among first generation and immigrant chefs. We want to know, was there a particular dish or a moment of enlightenment that could be credited for one of the chefs that they were working under? I've asked this question of many chefs many times before, but for chef Michael Elagdebe, the answer came as a surprise. Presumably he learned techniques that eluded him before walking into the door of some of the nation's best restaurants. But what was far more indelible for the young chef is just how much freedom of expression had played a role in granting European and European-trained chefs the ability to talk about the food that they were making. As you are now writing your own story, what is it that you want people to know about Nigerian food? The diversity, the diversity of Nigerian food. I have a strong opinion about when people classify African cuisine as a as just a singular cuisine. You know, Nigerian food and Ethiopian food are as different as German food can be from French food. And coming back home, it was very important for me to learn about the diversity even further of specifically Nigerian food. And in in trying to attain that knowledge, I started traveling by road across Nigeria and cooking with the keepers of the cuisine, so grandmothers, you know, cooks in very, very rural areas of Nigeria and sharing how diverse in technique, in culture, in flavor, in ingredients that Nigerian food is. I remember one of the most transcendent moments in my travel was experience in within uh, I was in Cross River. Cross River is uh, on the border of Nigeria and Cameroon and just experiencing like pepper soup. Pepper soup is a is a broth like soup with primarily seafood. People you know across Nigeria you know enjoy but just to see that the differences in the spices that are used from the northern part of Cross River to the eastern part of Cross River completely different. So traditionally, generally, pepper soup often have about maybe eight to 13 different spices, bark spices. So it's not really pepper. So you you have something like calabash nutmeg, uyaya, cloves, lemongrass. So you have all the spices and ingredients that come up into like this fortified broth, then the seafood is added. But you find in the northern part of the country, because it's not very close to the coast, they use a lot more dried seafood. So you see a lot of stockfish, uh, you see a lot of dried catfish being used in the pepper soup. But then you go to the coastal part of Cross River and you find a very, very fresh approach towards um, the preparation of pepper soup. And just this is literally, you know, in the same state. Uh, and it was just very transformative for me to experience that and see how passionate they were about just the regionality of how they experience one certain dish. The market you're hearing is called Oyingbo Market, one of the oldest and busiest markets in Lagos. It's popular for fresh produce from all parts of the country, from tomatoes, onions, pumpkin leaves, and peppers, to live chickens and catfish. As you walk through the market, you can hear the sounds of people grinding dry fruit products, such as dried yams and cassava, into flour, and traders calling you to patronize their stand and purchase fresh produce. The market has its own ecosystem. At a certain point, you will hear the sound coming from the mosque. At this time of day, Islamic traders go to the mosque and pray. The people who are coming to your your pop-ups or who are eating your food, 
I'm assuming that these are mostly people who are, are Nigerians, right? Who are in Lagos. Definitely. It's a good mix. So you have a lot of Nigerians and you have a lot of experts that are in Nigeria that want to experience uh, Nigerian food and understand more about Nigerian food in a way that they can't anywhere else. So Eton Test Kitchen is a space that I have in Ikoyi that I practice and also exhibit some of my work. And what I do with those type of experiences is give people a more insightful experience into the different cultures we have in Nigeria. So I can host a dinner specifically exhibiting Ibibio cuisine in my way, you know. What is indigenous? What flavor profiles? What ingredients are indigenous to the Ibibio people? or the Kalaba people, or the Awusa people, or specific region in the North. And using that approach to kind of an educational, conversational approach towards experiencing Nigerian cuisine in its diversity is what I do in the test kitchen. I'm curious what your time in the U.S. as an African chef what your experience was like in talking to or being in community to or with rather other african-american chefs did you find that there was any difference culturally in the experiences that you all were having an african-american chef friend uh, visit nigeria and we went to eat at a local buka and we we ordered almost everything on the menu and you know at a certain point you know he was he said this reminds me of my grandmother's bean dish. And that was an incredible moment, you know, because, of course, it's from the southern part of America. You know, a lot of West African people were taken to the southern part of America. And it was a very, very um, important moment because we were now able to have this experiential synchronicity in the way we saw each other's food and the way that we experienced it rather than two different entities if two different cuisine more so like a, a, you know a derivative of a cuisine of a people and i think it's important that africans and african americans begin to see those similarities and what makes us similar rather than different um, I think African cuisines in general are, is experiencing, you know, this burst in, in curiosity globally. And I think it's a great time to be an African chef, an African-American chef, exploring the history and indigenousness of the foods that we call ours and, and sharing it, of course. <laughs> And what do you remember about your childhood in Nigeria? Oh, food-wise? <laughs> um, sure, or, or otherwise. <laughs> yeah. otherwise. Um, food-wise, gosh, I remember... Um, Farm the table was was pretty much how we ate. I I didn't realize that that was a, a style of eating or a, a thing until I moved here and I was in the food world and working at farm to table restaurants. But um, pretty much, I mean, if we were having chicken that evening, we had been running around just a couple of hours before. Or if we were having spinach or something like that, I was picking it from the garden. So I grew up in Lagos, which is like the, the city. It's like the hub. Yawande Kamalafe is a recipe developer in Brooklyn, New York. She is also the author of the New York Times feature, 10 Essential Nigerian Recipes. And she is the founder of the dinner series, My Immigrant Food Is. I'm from Nigeria. I wasn't born there, but I grew up there from about, I would say like 2 to 16 when I moved to the U.S. So my formative years, I would say, were, were in Nigeria, and both my parents are Nigerian. So. Mm-hmm. And my dad was from just a little outside of Lagos, a state called 
Ikiti. And I have gathered from him that he grew up eating like that, you know, growing whatever he ate, or maybe a neighbor growing whatever they ate. But food was, it was as much a part of life as everything else. You weren't removed from it. I remember thinking that the rich people had orange juice in boxes and we had to, mm-hmm. <laughs> we had to squeeze the orange <laughs> or like the people on TV had orange juice in boxes. And I'm interested that you chose the terminology farm to table to describe that experience because obviously mm. that's, you know, language and ideology that really has sprung from the Western world. So mm. Um, mm. at what point did you realize the way that you had grown up with food um, was actually something that was now starting to be coveted or fetishized mm. or commercialized in the U.S.? Absolutely. Um, so I, I moved here to go to college and then I decided to move to Atlanta and it was while I was living there in Atlanta and I was working at a restaurant called um, Restaurant Eugene. And I remember whatever was on the menu that night was something that the the chef or the farmers had picked up at the market. Or um, we had this farmer, Dan, who would bring huge boxes of strawberries. And I sort of recalled that that was what I had known growing up in Nigeria, it was the first time I had felt not so much removed from the food world as um, my culinary education and my training had taught me. And I was like, oh, like, I guess what, how I grew up was farm to table then. Mm -hmm. But later on, (laughs) when I finally got to revisit Nigeria, I sort of shunned that, that terminology because I, I felt that it added another class layer to it where it was something where you had to aspire to be, but it, it really just was. It wasn't something for rich people. It wasn't something for special people. It's really just how most of the world eats. Mm-hmm. So to backtrack a little bit, I had been running these dinners called My Immigrant Food Is. And so I had started these dinners sort of to create a platform to, for me primarily to learn about my own cuisine and my own culture and through food, which is how I usually examine a lot of things. I started them in 2016, you know, after, right after the election and there was so much going on and I felt that it would be great to be able to have conversations about like the immigrant narrative because it was something that I'd never really heard in the larger discussion as it was in 2016. And so the immigrant story, the immigrant narrative, what happens when someone moves here? Because the stories before that I always felt were so incomplete. It would go something like, oh, so-and-so moved and then their family joined them and now they're living the American dream. And I'm like, well, what how did they get a visa or, you know, how did they move their family here? You know, there were so many gaps in that story. And also I had been going through my own immigrant crisis where I had lived undocumented for about 10 years in the United States. I wasn't able to go back to Nigeria in that time, but I just hadn't been back in about 18 years at that point. When people think of immigrants, my face is not the first one that comes up. And so I thought that these are the stories that you hear, but you don't really see the the faces of these people. And so I wanted a platform to share my story and also give other people a chance to share their stories. And so I wanted to also talk about the regionality of the cuisine, because Nigerian food isn't just one thing, depending on the region, depending on the people, depending on the part of the country, it's influenced by all of those different things. And so I, I thought that it wouldn't be fair if I said, oh, abeata is the classic Nigerian, <laughs> the classic Nigerian sauce, but, you know, it's not called abeata. So let's talk about some of these dishes. Maybe we should start uh, with one 
from Lagos, uh, what is a, a quintessential dish from the big city of Nigeria? I would say Frijan to tell the story of Frijan is sort of to tell the story of Lagos because Lagos is a place where a lot of people have settled and it was a port city. And so it was the, the, the seat of the slave trade, which is an interesting story to tell because the story of slavery is also the story of Lagos. Mm-hmm. And so Frijan is a dish that was brought back by people who returned to Lagos, who found their way back. They discovered that they were from Nigeria. They returned to Lagos, but they brought with them cuisines, cultures, customs um, from Brazil where, where they had been. And so these are people who were taken as slaves away, but they made their way back to Nigeria. Mm. And so Frijan is a dish that tells that story because it's also a dish that's served in Brazil. So I love this part because though I haven't been to Brazil, I always think of Brazilians as our cousins on the other side of the transatlantic slave trade. And as always, this connection is most easily identifiable in our food. After the abolition of slavery in Brazil in 1888, many Brazilians of West African origin returned to Nigeria and settled in Lagos Island, now known as the city's Brazilian quarter. Their unique blend of African and Latin cultures flowered into a cuisine that continues to be enjoyed across Nigeria. Frejon is reminiscent of Brazilian feijoada. Frijan is a dish of beans cooked and pureed with coconut milk to make a, a sort of um, a thick soup. And it's served typically with a fish in a tomato-based sauce. And fish because Lagos is also a port city and so seafood's a big a big part of the cuisine of Lagos. So it's it's a beans pureed with coconut milk served with a spicy tomatoey fish sauce. What well, why is it such a thing as a dish? Let's take a quick break and meet Yawande in the kitchen as she walks us through how she makes Frijon. Soak your beans for four hours and up to 12 hours. Rinse and transfer to a heavy bottomed pot. Pour in enough water to cover the beans up to four inches. Make a bouquet garni with your thyme, bay leaf, half onion, and add to the pot of beans. Simmer on low until the beans are tender. Season, remove from heat, and allow the beans to cool in the cooking liquid. Discard the bouquet garni. Strain out the liquid from the pot of beans. Puree the beans with up to one cup of whole coconut milk. Return the bean puree to the pot and keep warm over low heat. Slice the remaining onion and saute with olive oil over medium heat. Stir in the garlic, habanera, and dried crayfish. Add in the tomatoes plus juice and allow the sauce to simmer. When the sauce is slightly thickened, add in the red palm oil. Cook this for an additional two to three minutes. To serve, combine the herbs, scallions, and lime zest in a small bowl. Divide the bean puree among several bowls and top with a spoon of the chunky tomato sauce. Sprinkle with gari, scatter the herbs over the top, and finish with a squeeze of lime juice. Okay, so we're talking Nigerian food. I feel like you know where this is going. (laughs) (laughs) I almost don't want it to go there. (laughs) I'm contractually obligated. (laughs) okay let's let's just do it let's just do it (laughs) all right let's get into it i have to ask you about jollof of course of Um, course (laughs) and i know that this is something that is shall we say spirited spirited Um, is a great word spirited (laughs) is a great word (laughs) among many countries and many of those of us uh from 
or of the diaspora. So what is the deal with jollof rice? Like, why is it <laughs> such a thing? <laughs> well, why is it such a thing as a dish? Or why is it such a thing that people want to own it so bad? <laughs> I think I think both. Like, what is the relationship mm. between the two? You know, what what is the significance of this dish um, okay. that it kind of moves between countries as a, a sense of pride and friendly contention. Yeah. Um, I, so I think jollof rice is easy, easily recognizable mm-hmm. for one. I mean, I think it's also just delicious. I think that the story of how it's traveled across West Africa is an interesting one. I can say this as a Nigerian that it's it's not a dish that belonged to Nigerians. You know, I think it's it's a dish that's traveled. It's a dish that we've come to. I don't think that it's a dish that we originated, but it's rooted in Senegal. If you explore Senegalese cuisine, there's a dish called tebujen. It's their popular dish there. And it's a dish of broken rice cooked with meat and vegetables in a tomato-based sauce. The difference with that and jollof rice is that we typically don't cook jollof rice with meat and vegetables. It's typically just rice that's cooked in the tomato-based sauce. So tebujen, it's a dish that the you know the Wolof people, who are also called the jollof people, have thankfully given to us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and so I think every West African country has made it their own and has found a way to make it their own. And jollof rice is something that's just easily recognizable if you're West African and you see a pot of jollof rice, you're like, oh, I know that. I know that dish. I know where you might be from, depending on how you make it. I think jollof rice in Nigeria is also associated with party and celebration and and um, the weekend. It wasn't really a dish that we ate every day. Maybe things have changed now. Um, I asked Yawande her thoughts on Nigerian food becoming increasingly mainstreamed. She made an important point that you can't really put a trend on food. Nigerians have been eating their cuisine for thousands of years, and it's not possible for a food or an ingredient to be newly discovered. Uh, it's also important to recognize that it, it's not a trend. It's, it, you know, it's a way of life. It's a source of living and has been for a very long time. The fact that it's getting the attention that it is right now is good in some ways because it it, it sort of like levels out the, the playing field, you know, where I can now talk about my cuisine and people can recognize, oh, yeah, jollof rice, like I've heard of that before. You know, I, I think that all cuisines deserve this recognition. You know, I, I don't think that it does humanity due diligence to only label one cuisine as a trend or as important. I think that all cuisines deserve recognition because it it belongs to a people and those people deem it important, whether you do or not. I hope that the people who are involved in Nigerian, Nigerian food are given the opportunity to tell our own stories because I think that's also where it's gone very wrong with other other cuisines. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. 
Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. My brother Tunde Wei is a New Orleans-based chef and writer. I'm always humbled not only to call you a friend, Tunde, but to consume your work as someone who thinks deeply about matters of food access, justice, equity, culinary arts, you know, all of it. And I'm really pleased that you're joining us today on Point of Origin. I thank you for your time and talent. Of course, I know who you are, but for those who are listening to this podcast who want to know who is Tunde Wei, who are you? The first thing is like I'll just say I'm 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 Nigerian, which is a strange thing to say because I, I haven't been home in 20 years. But yeah, I'm just a Nigerian cook and a writer, and I uh, I use like food and my writing to interrogate systems of exploitative power, mm-hmm. and then and and then these systems of of power that are exploitative create disparities. And so now my work is moving towards trying to close those disparities while absolutely acknowledging that they can never be closed completely or even um, remotely. So, yeah, that's, I guess, who I am. And centering yourself as Nigerian, when did you come to the United States? So when I came to the United States, I moved to Detroit and then um, to live with my aunt. And then we moved out of Detroit to a suburb of Detroit. And then 2011, so 11 years after, I moved back into the city by myself. And two years later, I opened up a restaurant in Detroit, technically in Hamtramck, which is an enclave within the city of Detroit. And I tell the Detroit story because Detroit was central to me opening up a restaurant and getting into food. It was uh, uh, serendipity. Like If I didn't move to Detroit in 2011, I would never have been in food. Mm-hmm. Like being in Detroit at that time and having sort of access that I had and being in mostly white spaces, the opportunities were not as democratic. They were not nearly as democratic as I thought. So distribution of capital, both material and social, is a big part of your work. At what point did you start to realize that you yourself had developed uh, a social capital that you could spend down? I was uh, I was cooking and telling the story about Nigerian food and like using it as a way to juxtapose or to juxtapose against European or Eurocentric food and trying to get people to think about food as different kinds of food as having different kinds of like parallel um, relationships instead of the way it was thought about which was like French cuisine is at the top and then you know brown and black food is at the bottom so so this was the work that I was trying to do was just about engaging people around questions of of superiority when it came to food but what was really the thing was the the Black Lives uh, Matter movement which had started probably in 2000. 14, 15. Yeah. Yeah. I think around 2015, at least for me, it rose to the top of the, of, of national consciousness in the United States, Mm -hmm. you know, and it definitely like, it definitely came to my consciousness more assertively then. And I, I would say just completely 
honestly, like before 2016, I didn't have any politics in the sense that like I didn't have an analysis, like a critical analysis of power. Can you tell me like what the, the <laughs> impetus was to, to kind of shift more into to making your, your dinner almost like performance art? I wanted to talk about blackness. That was those were the first series of dinners that I did, but I had no idea what it was going to be. So I just, you know, I had this the first series of of, of dinners, and I, I invited black people in New Orleans to share the experience experiences of being black, and then from there, you know, it just became me then asking questions to these folks in the space, and then. And white people started, you know, coming to the dinners. It became more uh, mixed. And then I started asking questions to the white people. And then it it moved away, you know, from a dinner series on blackness to an interrogation of whiteness. Because, you know, black folks aren't the problem. I mean, the problem with racism isn't with black folks, as um, I've heard some people say. And, and, and it's true. So it, so it moved to that. And I am averse to performance, but... You know, to your point, I, I guess the dinners were performative because there was this like element of like a strong element of tension. In fact, it wasn't an, an element. In 2018, Tunde hosted a month long dinner series that was somewhat controversial. So I'm going to try to explain for the listeners what was going on here. And Tunde will later explain in greater detail. But basically, he was in New Orleans and he hosted a pop up in which the average dish cost twelve dollars. But for white diners, they were asked to pay or recommended to pay $30 for the same dish. Now, the price of that dish reflects the racial wealth gap in New Orleans, which is something like 10 to 1. And I guess it is somewhat performative, but it is also in keeping with Tunde's approach in the kitchen and outside of it. My work has taught me is that you have to look like beneath you know, you have to have multiple reads, right? So, so the first read was I was kind of surprised that all the white people that I asked, or most of them that I asked to pay the higher price, did so, and I was like, wow, this is incredible. But I then started to like think about how how they did it. Right. So a lot of times what was happening was like they were negotiating, you know, folks would be like, oh, wh where is this money going to? Or who, who is the extra money going to? So if I pay $30 instead of $12 for a meal, where, where does the difference go to? And then people wanted to just pay the 12, but then maybe leave me a big tip. So all, there was all this maneuvering. And, and what I realized was that, you know, there's a difference between like money and power. Right. So folks are very comfortable giving money, especially when it's charity. But to give up power, which is to maybe sometimes give money and then give up control, it is super difficult. So and this is like the, the amazing thing with racism, like racism or any sort of power disparity is so ingenious because you think it's one thing and then you go in there, and you find that it's something completely different, you know, and everything really is just um, it's just a mask for for power and so when we talk about um you know like i talk about reparations or i talk about closing disparity it is just as important how it's, it's done not not that it's done because people can give money but if they give money but they still control how the money is spent who the money goes to when they give the money then nothing changes you know so mm -hmm. that was the biggest lesson Was there a moment where you thought that this interrogation of whiteness at these meals needed to be taken to another level or was this just an organic outgrowth? Yeah. So the answer is both. Right. Like if I was to describe my work to interrogate systems of exp exploitative power, which is what I was doing at the dinner table during my, my dinner series. I was interrogating whiteness, which to me is a system of exp exploitative power. And then these systems, like I said earlier, create disparities. And so I got like emotionally exhausted from doing this interrogation uh, without seeing any, from my perspective, tangible change. So I, I wanted to move to, to closing, closing the, these disparities. 
And let me go back to then before 2016, before this shift, when you were motivated by trying to get people to think more deeply about or even perhaps at all Nigerian food. What is it that you felt was absent in the lexicon of of the food world um, in that moment? To use a gender term, too pregnant with too many, too many words. Too, there was too much. It was too abstract. You know, American food or Eurocentric food was self-referential. It only talked about itself, talked about what was on the plate. It didn't talk about anything else. You know, when I was growing up and the, the way I understood Nigerian food and people have different perspectives on this, you know, you eat the food and the food is 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 nourishment, yes, but it's also an experience. When I served my food, I just served it and it was, I served it mostly to American folks and I didn't say what was on the menu, not because I was trying to be a dick or anything, but, but because I didn't want to give folks references to foods they've never had that were based on um, a, a cuisine that is completely different from Nigerian food. So I didn't want to tell somebody that like a goosey tastes like blue cheese. Because it doesn't, you know, you have to like eat a goosey to know what it tastes like. And it's, it's funny that you say, lang- you say um, lexicon because it's the language it needed to be simplified. And I think it still, it still does. I am interested in, you know, like you lead with the fact that you are Nigerian. Obviously you are Nigerian through and through, but you grew up in another sense, you know, here in the U.S. for the last 20 years around African-American people, culture. How do you hold your Nigerianness in the context of blackness in the United States of America? That's such a fantastic question, Stephen. For real, uh, and it's also like an uncomfortable question for me because I would say, and again, this is something that I didn't know until 2016, that most of my time here had been shaped around Africanness and whiteness. My black American experience is like mostly through like cultural consumption, like of music, fashion, cinema, all that kind of stuff. And this is, I don't know, this may be controversial or hard to say, there is a complicity too in that black Americans are still Americans, right? And I think that to a certain extent is a responsibility for black Americans to begin to reach out to Africans, mm-hmm. you know, and do the work of understanding, say, the African experience and then the African immigrant experience, because that's a, those are like very specific experiences. And there is, there, there is domination on, from both sides. Like, I, you know, I grew up in Nigeria and I had, we had kids in my high school who were, American and who were black and they were treated differently from me because like they had an accent that was more um, coveted, you know, similarly, you know, I have African or my, my Nigerian parents and aunties, like sometimes they look down on certain black people because, you know, of, of stereotypes that they have been fed. And so I think it's great that we, that, that we have these distinct identities you know, across the continent and diaspora and within the diaspora and also within the continent. But these disparities or differences need to, shouldn't like create the rifts that they have. This universality painfully events despite disparateness is possible because of a few things, including our food. Thank you so much for tuning in to Point of Origin. You know, I have so much enjoyed this episode, as I mentioned at the top of the show. These are three individuals whose work I admire and I think are doing the imperative work of expanding people's ideas about African cuisine and, in effect, Africanness. And there was so much to absorb from these conversations, but the one thing that I'd like to call back to, a takeaway, if you will, was Chef Elegdebe's response to what he learned in formal culinary education and in professional kitchens. And that was owning their own stories. 
more than their ideas, more than their techniques, and yes, even more than their talent, was the biggest predictor of what we perceive to be genius. And for his ability to identify this, I think Chef Elegdebe himself is a genius. Genius is not the property of a particular place or people. Why is it, for instance, so uncommon for non-white chefs to be referred to in this manner? And to what degree have we conflated genius and craft with access to audience and capital? Finally, for the geniuses cooking in the shadows of chefs who benefit from the power of their own narratives, it is my hope that they will never fail to lose sight of their own. We'll be back next week with our second episode of Point of Origin Season 2. On behalf of our team at Whetstone Magazine and Whetstone Media, we thank you for tuning in. Please, if you like what you've just heard, rate us, review us, give us five stars so that we can continue to make these podcasts just for you. I'd like to thank our guests today, Chef Michael Elegdebe, Yowande Komolafe, and Chef Tunde Wei. Special thanks to Celine Glacier, our lead producer, to Kat Hong, our editor, Quentin LeBeau, our production intern, and to my business partner who makes all things at Whetstone possible, our co-founder, Melissa Shi. Thanks, Mel. And thanks to our friends at iHeartRadio for helping us bring you this podcast. To Gabrielle Collins, our supervising producer, and to Christopher Hasiotis, our executive producer. I'm your host, The Origin Forager, Stephen Satterfield, and we'll be back here next week with more from Whetstone Magazine's Point of Origin podcast. That's all for this episode of Point of Origin. Thanks for listening and supporting the Whetstone podcast, where we travel the world to champion food as a means of expanding human empathy. To keep abreast with all things Whetstone, follow us on IG at Whetstone Magazine or online at whetstonemagazine.com. That's W-H-E-T-S-T-O-N-E magazine.com where you will find the latest on all things Whetstone, including the details from today's show and information about purchasing our print magazine. Once again, I'm your host, Stephen Satterfield, and we'll see you next week. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.